This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to the Red Box Podcast on the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. This week, I'm joined by Hugo Rifkin, who wonders if there's anything which will put voters off Donald Trump. Henry Zeffman asks, when should those accused of sex abuse be named? But first, Rachel Sylvester on the power struggle around the cabinet table. Everyone thought Theresa May was rushing headlong into a hard Brexit after her conference speech, but cabinet ministers say her true view is more nuanced. Philip Hammond has become the voice of economic reality, standing up to the ideological Brexiteers. He's now the most powerful man in the Cabinet, and pro-Europeans believe he is winning the Prime Minister round. Now, Rachel, this is interesting because when Theresa May went into Downing Street, Philip Hammond was written up as not even the most powerful Philip in uh, government because <laughs> Philip May was seen as being more influential on, on Theresa May. But over the last few weeks, we've heard a bit more about what's been happening in these new, open, full and frank discussions that they're having in Cabinet. And it turns out that Philip Hammond is the one who's, who's sort of standing up for the Remainers. It's really interesting. And he's building up quite a lot of alliances around the Cabinet table from the sort of pre- Remainers or now, who've now really turned into more soft Brexiteers. Everyone agrees. Brexit means Brexit. But they're the ones saying, look, don't rush towards absolutely crashing out of the single market, pulling up the borders. I, was, I spoke to one minister yesterday who said, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it, but you can split the cake in lots of different ways and try and find a compromise that isn't, is going to be as undamaging as possible to the economy. And of course, for Philip Hammond is the voice of of the economy, the voice of the Treasury, and Theresa May, whatever else she needs, she needs to make sure that the British economy doesn't go down the pan if she can at all avoid it. So everything that he says becomes incredibly important. And he's also, he's using a lot of figures, I'm told, he's giving these sort of gloomy assessments, speaking, <laughs> you know, reading out these Treasury assessments. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the other ministers, the Brexiteers, have got their sort of ideas and their great dreams, their buccaneering visions of how Britain's going to be sailing off into the world. But actually, he's confronted May with all these facts and figures saying actually it might not be as easy as that. And some of the, the Remain cabinet ministers I was talking to, so they, they're sort of keeping Stumm for the time being, they're allowing him to become, one of them used the phrase, shop steward of the Remainers. Yeah, He's sort of speaking up for them, while David Davis and others, as you say, sort of thrash around they, they say a lot but they don't really 
convince a huge amount and let them t- sells, tie, tie mm, themselves up in mm. knots while Hammond focuses on the on the economy. Yeah, another minister said to me it was there were like three peacocks strutting around. That was the brilliant. It was in your in your column this week. Yeah, it, and then in the end, the, the hen will choose. They said, you know, it's just sort of, and actually they can exactly as you say they can strut around and show off as much as they like. And and the Remainers are convinced that they're doing a lot of leaking to the press and trying to use us to kind of get their positions across, whereas. Philip Hammond and the Remain, formerly Remain ministers, are trying to be very kind of proper and deal, through, you know, deal with the facts and figures. I think it's interesting, though. You've so the party conference was very much about politics. So it was can Theresa May convince the Eurosceptics that although she'd voted Remain, she was now properly committed to delivering Brexit. But now you've moved away from politics onto economics, and that's where these hard facts and the hard reality is starting to bite. So I think that all the assumptions and the headlines that were written at the time of the conference that, you know, Britain was now heading definitely towards this hard Brexit, and of course the markets reacted yeah, the very <laughs> badly yeah, yeah. to that. I, I think perhaps there's now an adjustment going on, um, whether or not that's to do with the market reaction. But actually, I think anyway, it was always the case that Theresa May had a more nuanced view and she was going to take, as you know, she did before the EU referendum, she looked at both sides, she took a sort of pragmatic decision in the end. She wasn't ideologically Remainer, she was a sort of reluctant Remainer, a bit like Philip Hammond. And I think he is um, being quite persuasive. Now, Henry, you've uh, just launched the new Brexit briefing from the Times. You're taking a huge detailed interest in uh in what's happening with Brexit. Are we any closer to really... We know more about the, some of the sort of squabbling and the differences in Cabinet. Are we any closer to knowing what will emerge out of that um, as the final deal? I don't think we really are, no. I mean, I think we can rule certain things out. We're not going to remain in the European Union, uh, barring totally unforeseen uh, catastrophe or events or, you know, David Davis uh, reversing all the views he's held for the last however many decades. But we can sort of see the contours of at least how Theresa May is going to sell her negotiation to the British people, because you've got to remember that she is going to be in a at least two years behind closed doors negotiation, not just with the European Commission, but with uh, the European Council, which represents, uh, you know, every single uh, other member state, and also the European Parliament has a negotiator, uh, who's a former Belgian Prime Minister who's quite intransigent about the whole thing. And it's not going to be good enough for her to just say nothing to the British public through those two years, be that to Parliament or in sort of more media interview style. So she is going to clearly tell the, the public, as she did at Tory party conference, that she is taking a very hard line. But I think we might see that soften as the two years go on and as she starts to at least try to extract some sort of concessions from the British people, but uh, for, rather from the negotiators. But no, I don't think we really do have an especially clear idea of what she wants out of the deal, except that, as Rachel says, um, it's quite implausible with Philip Hammond as her Chancellor and, and she herself, of course, having back remain in the referendum that she's going to go for this sort of incredibly hard Brexit that some of her uh, more hardened backbenchers are urging her towards. Hugo, do you feel that you're in safe hands with Philip Hammond? Well, I mean, yes, um, uh, I, I, I sort of do. What's, look, what, what's interesting about this is perhaps the reason why we're hearing about ha- Hammond as, as the, the, the remain voice of sanity, or whatever you want to call it, is because when you think about it, he's the only member of the cabinet involved with Brexit who has a real job. <laughs> uh, I, mean, it's, I mean, you know, Bo- Boris Johnson's off doing his Boris Johnson-y things, not really involving himself in Europe. 
God alone knows how David Davis fills his days. No one's no one's ever been able to figure it out. I think briefing out. the papers exactly. takes up quite a lot of the time. Li- Liam Fo- Allegedly. Li- Liam, Fox, <laughs> Liam Fox is basically our chief trade negotiate, negotiator who's not allowed by law to negotiate any trade deals. And then you've got poor Philip Hammond, who's got all this pouring in on him and actually needs to manage an economy. Uh, like, of course he's taking a cautious position. He's the, he, the, On his watch, he's the Chancellor. On his watch, the pound has plunged to its lowest level in 168 years. Of course he's not going to be hawkish for Brexit, going, let's, guys, let's see if we can make this worse. You know, I mean, so he's... <laughs> he's um, while while I, I completely appreciate his starting position was as a Remainer, and quite a relatively fervent Remainer, just by virtue of the job he's doing, he's got to be the voice of caution. Uh, and he is he is the person, I mean, it, it's the role the Treasury very often has anyway, but he is particularly now the, the guy who's got to be sitting there in the middle going, for God's sake, calm down, you're going to kill us all. Somebody I was talking to likened it to the role that Alistair Darling played when he was Chancellor, that he, uh, coming out of the financial crash, he, he became almost an apolitical, but his role was to mm. rescue the economy and to try and get the banks back on their feet, regardless of what impact that had on Gordon Brown's electability. And actually, they, they totally fell out at that point. Well, I mean, people often say in the Cabinet the role of the Chancellor is basically... To, well, the role of the Treasury, more even than the, than the Chancellor, is to tell ministers why they can't do things. Yeah. yeah. And, um, the department that yeah. likes to say no isn't... And, and, yeah. that, and that, that happens all the time. It's particularly going to be happening now because the things they want to do are quite so far-reaching and massive and have such ramifications that, of course... I mean, look, if the Treasury's not looking at the bottom line, who is? The politics are interesting, though, because the Brexiteers say, oh, Philip Hammond's been captured by the sort of experts, the orthodoxy of the Treasury, the dreaded experts are back. (laughs) Um, But actually, you know, then they say, oh, it's Project Fear rearing its head again. But actually the problem for them now is it's Project Reality. You know, you've had even Marmite under threat. You've got the pound kind of going (laughs) through the floor. It's sort of, actually, people are beginning to think through the sort of really what are the economic consequences of this that are going to affect ordinary people. I thought it was fascinating that Theresa May had the head of Nissan into number 10 last week and I'd just love to know what assurances he was given and is there some people are saying you could have a sort of sector by sector agreements to for various um, trade deals by you know one for the car industry one but then you know who do you leave out and each sector is going to have their own special needs and interests but if she said to the head of Nissan look whatever happens you won't lose out so please keep your factory in Sunderland, even though they voted for Brexit. You know, be, it's they're, they're now beginning to have be faced with those really tough decisions. I think it was um, I think John Redwood said said that Hammond was behaving like a risk free account, a risk averse accountant, mm. and it's like for God's sake, yes, man, he's, he's the chancellor. <laughs> you know, and I, mean, I think it was meant as an insult. Exactly. Sort of quietly reassured you know, him. Isn't the chancellor meant to behave like a risk averse accountant? I mean, have you gone mad? <laughs> yes, it's John Redwood, but you know. There's also a sort of broader Whitehall context to this, which is whether the Treasury's influence uh, has waned quite substantially uh, just in Theresa May's three and a half short months as Prime Minister. I mean, it has fewer ministers than it has had for about a decade. They lost a minister when Theresa May uh, became Prime Minister and then uh, the Lord's Minister, former Goldman Sachs economist Jim O'Neill, resigned and wasn't replaced. Uh, On Budget Day with George Osborne used to have this sort of huge stream of people uh, posing alongside the future Prime Minister. 
it won't be nearly as many with Philip Hammond on his first budget day. And there is a sort of question about, I mean, when Philip Hammond was appointed Chancellor, people sort of wrote her up, wrote him up as, as one of Theresa May's closest allies. She doesn't have allies, really. Um, he had agreed with her on some things around the cabinet <laughs> table, but they certainly weren't friends or anything approaching that. And so you sort of have this strange relationship between Chancellor and Prime Minister where they aren't sort of close in the way that Osborne and Cameron are, but they also aren't sort of officially at loggerheads in the way that Darling and Brown were, uh, or, or Brown and Blair were, which gave the, the, the Treasury some sort of institutional heft. And it sort of falls into this weird middle zone where we don't quite know where the Treasury stands. And in a way, that's quite a positive, you mm. know, isn't that quite a sort of healthy position? So he's not in the strategy meetings like George Osborne was, because he's not one of the government's political strategists. Mm. But he does see his role as, you know, holding the government to account and making sure the bottom line is going to work. And uh, you talk to other civil servants and things and they say he does very much see his role as to have a role across Whitehall he sees it as sort of traditional chancellor's role of making sure the the sums add up and you know that gives him a quite that makes him a important figurehead well let's uh, let's move on uh, from there i'm sure brexit will be something we'll return to again before we do move on um, i need to ask you to do me a favor if you're listening to us via itunes pop onto the our profile there and give us a review and a rating obviously only do that if you're enjoying it if you're not uh, please just keep it to yourself now though henry uh, what would you like to talk about this week Sir Cliff Richard told an audience of MPs and peers in Parliament how he feared he would be forever tainted by sex abuse allegations for which he was never charged. The singer has joined other public figures with similar experiences to campaign for anonymity for those accused of sex offences until or unless they are charged. But campaigners worry such a move would reduce the number of women who come forward to the police. How do we strike a balance between helping the police and prosecutors and upholding the principle of innocent until proven guilty? Henry, it was this sort of strange spectacle in Parliament yesterday because you had Cliff Richard, Paul Gambaccini, uh, you know, all of the celeb spotters in Parliament sort of came out to try and um, find them. But it's, but it's a really sort of big question, this. And to be honest, it's one that I, I can't work out how I... Because the, there are strong arguments on both sides. It's a difficult one to work out what, what is the right thing to do. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it was very strange in Parliament yesterday, usually quite boring, quiet end of the committee corridor where the House of Lords does it uh, does its work and uh, Black Rod, who's usually only spotted um, as the object of a Dennis Skinner quip once or twice a year sort of walk past trying to find Cliff Richard. Um, anyway, his his favourite Cliff Richard song is Summer Holiday, I can exclusively reveal. But um, yeah, it, it is actually um, um, very serious. Obviously, Cliff Richard, uh, two years ago, um, a raid on his house by police was televised by a BBC helicopter and he is now suing the BBC and South Yorkshire Police for that. It was a series of allegations stretching over a couple of decades from four men. He was never charged, and he was speaking at this meeting alongside Paul Gambaccini, BBC broadcaster who was bailed for a year without charge on similar offences, and also Lady Britton, the widow of, of Leon Britton, the former Home Secretary, um, who was investigated uh, on a historic allegation of rape and was still, as he was aware, under investigation when he died, even though uh, the police and prosecutors had decided four months before that he had no case to answer, having before decided that he, in fact, had no case to answer, but reopened the case uh, at the insistence of a few politicians. So it is, is a very emotional issue. I mean, I didn't realise, actually, until looking into this for the story yesterday, that we actually did used to have anonymity for defendants of sex abuse cases. So in 1976, when anonymity for uh, accusers was introduced... 
they also introduced anonymity for defendants, and then it was at, it was uh, revoked uh, in 1988 uh, by the Thatcher government on the, I think, quite compelling principle that, yes, of course, if you are accused and then acquitted of uh, sex abuse allegation, then it, it is a sort of stain which sticks, but then that is also the case for all sorts of other crimes, murder, burglary, for which you're accused and then acquitted. So, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, it, it also came up again at the start of the coalition government. It appeared in the coalition agreement, even though it had been in neither of the Lib Dems or Tory manifestos, and no one was quite sure where it had come from. And Ken Clark and Crispin Blunt, who was then one of the justice ministers, um, quite quickly knocked it down. What, what do you make of this, Hugo? Where, where do you think the line should be drawn on, on when people are named? There's a danger of sort of falling prey to the illusion of control. Look, what happened to Cliff Richard was... Appalling. Really, really bad. The way the police behaved in tipping off the BBC was shocking. The way the BBC behaved in covering it was was shocking. There should be fallout in both these areas. However, I want us to imagine a situation in which this law had already existed and all this had happened and Cliff Richard's name had not been made, pu- made public, which means effectively that newspapers and the media were banned from reporting his name. What that would have meant would have been maybe a front page on The Sun the next day going pop star uh, raided or whatever with no name given um, you'd have had Ferrari on social media why is Cliff Richard trending innocent face why is the media covering this up they all know everyone knows just no one's saying everyone knows which swirls around for years other people get dragged into the fray we still often operate I mean a lot of Leveson was predicated on this on this idea on the basis that if newspapers don't publish stuff then stuff is not known mm. that's no longer the case so it's not it's not this simple I don't really know what the answer is Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. But I'm pretty sure this isn't it. Rachel? Actually, on this one, I do think there needs to be balance between the accuser and the accused. Because I think we've got into a situation of almost a cult of victimhood where the victim, who's actually the accuser, is not necessarily a victim, is given credibility. And it's assumed that the person they're making the allegations about is guilty. It is a sort of breach of the innocent until proven guilty, because by naming them, they're named and shamed. I mean, I agree, it's very difficult. And all the arguments about, you know, rape victims should, you know, I'd want to do anything to make sure that a genuine rapist is convicted and all of that. And you would have women maybe coming forward if if somebody's named, you're more likely to get other victims coming forward. But particularly with these celebrity cases, what's happened is the the witnesses have been, there was this guy called Nick, who was described as credible and true by the police, even though all he was doing was making all kinds of what emerged to be totally bogus allegations. So unless there's some kind of comeback on the accuser, as well as on the accused, I think you need to have tougher sanctions on somebody who makes false allegations. That person actually... Uh, they should have charges if it turns out that they're making false allegations. You need to have. You just need to introduce a balance so that you so that there's a disincentive to people to make false allegations, but also greater protection for the people who have false allegations made against them. Because the the, the people who are making these allegations aren't actually victims; they're accused. 
accusers, um, false accusers in, in many of these cases. I mean, I do wonder, and you raise the particularly appalling case of Nick, uh, who seems to have lulled uh, so much of the police force into sort of total and weird credulity. But and I do, MPs. and MPs as well, of course, you know, mm. uh, one of whom is now deputy leader of the Labour Party. But I do, I mean, I do wonder how many of the sort of most appalling celebrity cases are just actually uh, instances of police incompetence or worse rather than something that's sort of fundamentally wrong with the law so to give a sort of counter example where uh, naming someone who was only under investigation at that stage um, produced uh, you know uh, justice um, Stuart Hall the BBC broadcaster I think there was only one or two allegations against him when he was first named in the newspapers and then it turned out that he was of course a serial and, and horrifying rapist and uh, that's, I mean, rape sort of in its pathology is is is, is likely to be a sort of serial offence on behalf of a person. And you probably only get a sort of sense of its scale when you do do, and it, it is a bit of a fishing exercise. But I mean, it's not just celebrities. There was the, the fake taxi driver, John Warboys, um, who also sort of one or two people had accused him. And then his name went public, I think, because he was charged actually at that point. And then suddenly a stream of, of, of people uh, came if, forward. If the person's been charged, then that's one thing, because mm. at that point the police then believe they have sufficient evidence to press charges. The problem has been with people being named. And, and it's I guess the police quite like the association with celebrities and feeling that they're going after celebrities. So perhaps there's been more of an incentive to name people in these cases. But actually, there are hundreds of cases, probably obviously people we've never heard of who whose lives are also ruined yes. by these kinds of. There was the case of uh, what was it, uh, was it Chris Jeffries. Exactly. It? Very similar case, even though yeah. he wasn't a celebrity. Yeah. Very similar police behaviour. Yeah. And it's then I think if the police feel they've got enough evidence to charge a person, then at that point that's absolutely fair to name but if they if it's just a sort of allegations i think you have to be i think the i think the balance has got out of kilter and there's a there's a live issue at the moment because in the papers today as we speak there's an allegation against somebody who works for tory mp being accused of rape in the houses of parliament and i suppose actually there's a difference between whether the police make a sort of operational decision to release the name in the hope of other people coming forward because they think it's more widespread or somebody in a police force doing someone a favour or selling the story because, you know, oh, it's a celebrity in the nick or whatever. Uh, and that's a sort of different thing, the, the, the process by which this stuff becomes public. I, I, as I said, I've no idea what the answers are, but increasingly you become aware we have the, these analogue ways of doing things, these analogue laws. <laughs> you look, look, at, look at the guys under, under invest, investigation today. Uh, when the laws that, that have put his name in the public domain were formulated, what that would have meant would have been that the police would, you know, uh, either would have, would have announced to at a press conference or would have spoken to newspapers and told them, and it might have appeared as a little news in brief in a few newspapers, and some people would have seen it, and this guy, whatever he, he, he turns out to have done, would have gone about his daily life, and not everyone he knew would have known about it. As it is now, it's pumped across social media. For the rest of his life, it'll follow him around. It'll be his top Google hit, unless he does something remarkable with his life, whatever happens. And these laws were not formulated to create that situation. Yeah, that's the situation we've got. Well, it's an interesting one. And I think it's uh, given the the uh, conversation that Cliff Richard was having in Parliament, it's one that some MPs and peers might try to revisit, although I don't think there's a there's a um, easy way of resolving it. Um, Hugo, let's move on and discuss what is happening in America. In the West, nothing like Donald Trump has happened in half a century. To fear Hillary Clinton you have to believe that there's something nasty lurking behind the largely inoffensive things she says. That's normal for our politics. To not fear Trump, you have to believe there's something inoffensive lurking behind the largely nasty things he says. 
And plenty of people do. If Trump's actual words won't put them off, whatever will. So another extraordinary week in the world of <laughs> Donald Trump. It does seem as if, looking at the polls, that for months and months and months, people have said, oh, well, he won't win, and if he, you know, if he doesn't, uh, you know, eventually he'll come a cropper. And actually it looked like he wasn't. His popularity was holding up. And maybe it's because the Democratic Party has got its act together and they've, uh, you know, the, all the leaked tapes and all that seem to be having an effect now. And some polls put Hillary Clinton 11 points ahead. Yeah. Well, but, uh, I mean, 11, point, 11 points ahead, that, that's great if it means she wins. It's still a hell of a lot of people <laughs> voting, voting for Trump. I'm just struck by what a re- reversal of how things normally work this is. That um, there, there have been plenty of politicians in my lifetime, plenty of, plenty of, frankly, Republican presidential candidates who people have said, oh, this person's terrifying, secretly a racist, wants to strip, strip our liberties, etc., etc., etc. Trump says all this stuff. It's not like you need to read between the lines and go, oh, maybe he's a bit of a nasty demagogue. <laughs> you know, he, see, he, he says that he wants to track all Muslims by law. He says he wants to keep Muslims out of the country. He says he wants to deport 11 million people. You know, he says, he says that J- Japan and North Korea should both have nukes because it wouldn't be pretty, but at least it'd be quick. You know, I mean, he's, he's mad. And, um, if he and, was here, this, he would just be saying, no, I didn't. Yeah, but he, Even he though did. you've got the quotes yeah. printed out in front um, of you. <laughs> you know, he, 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 said, he, said that you, he said that you, um, you know, pe- people say, oh, that's, that person, they say they say such and such about abortion but they're actually do they actually believe terrible things he's said that he wants to punish doctors and women for when, when when abortions are performed he's said this stuff and it makes absolutely no difference and so we he, he attracts this constituency who i mean it would almost be better if you believed that they actually agree with the terrible things he says they don't care about the terrible things he says they um he says the terrible things it, it's almost part of a, some sort of game where he's baiting the right sort of people and he's being on the tribe of the other sort of right sort of people and it just it breaks our system utterly and i've simply no idea how we deal with it uh, henry it's sort of nigel farage on steroids turned up to 11 with rocket boosters but that that we and we saw and it's different here because we don't have the the presidential system so that you know four million votes only got the UKIP one MP but actually that idea of you saying the unsayable and there are a lot of people who like the fact that he's saying the unsayable even if he doesn't even if they don't agree with him but it's sort of sticking it to the man yeah I mean there are sort of decent I think parallels um, and you should always be wary of US British parallels because they generally just emanate from from a political class that really likes the West Wing um, but <laughs> but there are genuine parallels with with Trump and all sorts of things going in this country I think both Corbyn and Brexit so Brexit the kinds of people who Trump is drawing his support from although by no means exclusively because as Hugo notes it still looks like an incredible amount of America is going to vote for him they are the left behinds in inverted commas um that i mean you know the thing about make america great again it's not just the great that appeals it's the again it's a sort of appeal to a nostalgia which never quite actually necessarily existed but you know take you back to this time when the mine in your town wasn't shut down and you know you had a job and things were simpler um of course as the part of america that's voting for hillary clinton knows you know at that time also black people didn't have the vote but it's a kind of false nostalgia certainly that also existed with 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 uh, brexit you know take back control it's also appealing to something which apparently existed in the past but actually didn't necessarily but there's also a, i think a, a parallel with corbyn i'm not for a second saying that jeremy corbyn is on donald trump's level of of revoltingness or any of that he, sort he, of he'd thing, like to be but, on donald trump's level in the polls <laughs> <laughs> God, um, yeah. yeah probably is <laughs> yeah but anyway uh yeah 11 point lead isn't uh, 11 point deficit isn't as bad as a 17 point deficit that's true um but no i mean the republican party is sort of professing total shock that donald trump has uh, emerged 
even though he is basically just saying harder versions of what they insinuated for a few decades because they thought, oh, well, you know, if we insinuate that we agree with these people but don't quite say it, that's them sorted. They'll vote for us. We're sort of patting them on the head and they're fine with that. The Labour Party is sort of was shocked that Jeremy Corbyn emerged in 2015, even though, you know, Ed Miliband had sort of appealed to the very anti-war left uh, in the way that... Uh, you know, he'd sort of apologised for your what, war in his conference speech and whatever. And I mean, you know, I don't understand how the Labour Party, and I don't understand how the Republican Party are surprised that when the sort of full fat version comes along, people actually want that rather than someone who gives them a sort of half-hearted version, which is quite clearly triangulated and a bit insincere. Um, Rachel, what's your sense of what's happening in America? Well, I think it's, um, as Henry and Hugo said, it is quite similar to Brexit. It's not really about what Donald Trump says. It's about what he represents. So it's the anti-establishment. It's the stick it to the man. It's the take back control. It's America can be great again. It's it's a feeling that he's evoking rather than the tr- the... The, the sort of detail of what he's promising to do. So there was an American journalist who said, you know, we're losing the fight against him because we're bringing fact checkers to a culture war. And it's <laughs> as if he's on a different, it's like a parallel universe. Yeah. It's not as if, it's not playing politics by the same rules at all. It's this kind of post-truth politics where facts, it, it's not, it doesn't matter if facts are true or untrue, it matters whether they feel true. And it's, he's making people... He's tapping into the anger and the frustration that people feel with the status quo and the way things are now. And he's saying, I can take you out of that. So it's what people are voting against is exactly the same as Brexit. People are voting against something. They're not voting for something, really. And that's why, you know, it's quite dangerous because then that's a vacuum. And it's interesting the way that the backlash that he gets, far from damaging him, although it maybe it has in the last few days, but it sort of emboldens him in the same way, actually, with... Jeremy Corbyn, a lot of the stuff which would have probably got Ed Miliband removed as Labour leader, the backlash that he gets from his own MPs or from the the well, media or the comet area, actually that, that strengthens his position amongst his supporters. Do you remember when, uh, during the last election, Nigel Farage had what he called the shock and awful strategy, where he just deliberately went out to goad the Liberal you know political class if you like and he went and that was a sort of dog whistle to his supporters and he you know Trump knows that there are certain people who are never going to vote for him but he's doubling down on those people who are um, and it's so it's a deliberate strategy I think absolutely agree with with all of that but the the big sort of terrifying difference here is that these aren't dog whistles it's like I mean, yeah, like yeah, yes that yes there's a yes there are similarities between the, the popular yeah, well, exactly but the similarity yeah. between the populism of 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 corbyn the populism of brexit but if if either of those groups have behaved like donald trump mm. then rather than people going oh well you know what if you look at corbyn's policies you can sort of and his beliefs and his associations you can kind of detect that maybe there's an undercurrent of anti-semitism in the labor party if corbyn was behaving like trump he'd be going jews get out i hate them mm. you know if brexit if, if if people who campaigned for brexit have been behaving like trump they'd have gone yup we do want to get rid of foreigners we are being racist about this we hate these people you know i mean there's and so he, he's he's breached that the sort of the the I don't know the, the the cloak of civility under which politics normally happens, and people love it, and um and it's alarming. It, it, it's it's and it's it's alarming, obviously, because he wants to be the the leader of the free the free world, and it's still possible. Um, it's alarming here because he has inspired people here. You hear people like Aaron Banks and that absurd um, I can't remember his name. He was on Newsnight last night. The guy who wants to lead UKIP, uh, Raheem Raheem, Raheem Kassam. Kassam. Um, and they and they were um, and and they they will openly say yes, Trump is the model. And what they mean by Trump being the model is because he says the unsayable, because he breaches that cloak of civility, because he turns it into 
into a fight where you where you you stir up the passions and because you're no longer seeking consensus you're no longer trying to get everybody on 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 side to have you know the the most acceptable version of politics for everybody you're you're trying to win you're trying to crush your enemies you're trying to just generally be nasty and win and i think we should be alarmed about it well and also a liberal democracy does depend on people taking opposing sides of an argument but you have to agree on certain basic facts that you're discussing and then you're disputing how you respond to those facts and that truth and he just blows all that out of the window there's no basis on which you can have any kind of rational debate with Trump and that is actually you know that's quite an anti-democratic principle because there's no way of then challenging Mm -hmm. or confronting and it's a sort of it's an absolute breach of everything on which our system of government depends. And the, the terrifying thing is if you had two candidates like that, if you had a Donald Trump up against a Donald Trump type character, it'd be a total nightmare to work out what on earth was going on or what was going to happen afterwards. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for uh, this week. As ever, do remember to subscribe to the podcast via your Android device or on iTunes, where I'm sure you've already left a review for us. Uh, do let us know what you like or don't like by emailing redbox at thetimes.co.uk. You can tweet us at timesredbox or find us on Facebook. And as ever, if you want political news analysis and even occasional bit of gossip landing in your inbox every morning, you can sign up for my free Redbox email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Redbox email. But for now, from Rachel, Hugo, Henry and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.